now this is recording. RTI International Center for Forensic Science presents Just Science. Welcome to Just Science, a podcast for forensic science professionals and anyone who is interested in learning more about how real crime laboratories work. With this episode, we kick off our drug season. Topics will range from legalization of marijuana in relation to police officers, the opioid epidemic, electronic dance music festivals, how witnesses and victims' memory of events can be affected by alcohol, current vaping research, drug courts, and much more. Episode 1 features Nancy Crump, an assistant crime laboratory administrator at the Phoenix Police Department. In this episode, Just Science discusses the creation of the Field Identification Drug Officer Program, also known as FIDO. Nancy and John discuss how the lack of laboratory resources creates an inefficient system for testing drugs found in the field and possible solutions for this issue. This season of Just Science is funded by the National Institute of Justice's Forensic Technology Center of Excellence. Here's your host, Dr. John Morgan. Welcome to Just Science, the podcast for forensic science professionals. I'm John Morgan, your host. I'm here today in Phoenix with Nancy Crump, the Assistant Crime Laboratory Administrator for the Phoenix Police Department Laboratory Services Bureau. Nancy, her duties have ranged from drug analysis, providing expert testimony, training police officers in drug recognition and the creation, implementation, and expansion oversight of the Phoenix Police Department Controlled Substances Field ID Program. Some of you may have heard of it under the uh, moniker FIDO uh, when it was uh, being sponsored by the National Institute of Justice. Welcome, Nancy. Thank you. I'm a big believer in the use of field tools as long as they have proper validation and oversight. So you were in on the implementation of the Controlled Substances ID program in the beginning. How did you all decide that this was a a good path to go down to try to deal with your controlled substances issue? We originally were actually asked by our biggest customer, the Maricopa County Attorney's Office, to implement a program like this. The Arizona Department of Public Safety had already implemented a program for all of the agencies that, that they serve. So the Maricopa County attorneys approached us. We were, the Phoenix Police Department was actually the biggest customer, provided them with the most drug cases, and we were drowning them. And so when they brought it to us, um, the lab director at the time, the supervisor of the controlled substances section, brought it back to us, the analysts, and I was very vocal about how it would never work. (laughs) So that's why they put you in charge, right? (laughs) so in his infinite wisdom, he said, great, you have lots of experience training and developing stuff like this. This is your new project. So we actually went to DPS's program, attended as if we were officers, took the program. They were very kind and gracious and loaned us all of their information. We took that program and then created the program with the quality assurance aspect and the the continual testing aspect that we thought it would need to actually be successful. So why were the county attorneys involved or concerned about it? Did they feel like they weren't getting, like the officers weren't doing a good job recognizing the substances visually or how did that work? No, it was strictly a resource issue from the laboratory. So we provided them with lots of cases and 
we had a, a time frame that we had to get it if someone was arrested. So this was more of an efficiency. Can you get us the cases like DPS does where the officers do that initial testing and then they don't sit in the queue in the crime lab waiting longer than that 48 hours to be tested? So here 10 years later, is the program still the routine way for doing controlled substances ID or how often is it that something is initially coming straight into the crime laboratory for more traditional analysis? It varies. When we started the program, the program was only good to be used on cocaine in powder or base form, mm -hmm. methamphetamine, and marijuana. When we started the program in 2000, that was about 80% of our caseload. Now, they would still get through to us because we don't train everyone on the force. We've always shot for a goal of about 300 officers. We still since 2000 have never met that. So depending on the officers, depending on where they're at within the city, those are those cases that are getting tested by the officers and go straight to the county attorneys. If you're in a precinct in the middle of the night on Saturday night and don't have a controlled substances officer that can come test it, it comes directly to the lab. So it's probably at least 50-50. Sure. One of the things that happens with officers, almost all of them are certified to do breathalyzer testing. Right? It's Correct. kind of almost pretty much a requirement of the job. But obviously you're not requiring that every officer become a controlled substances officer. Correct. Are they given an incentive? They do get continuing education points, CEP points is what they're mm -hmm. called. But when we started the program, they weren't. It was literally marketed as a, you're frustrated because you arrest somebody for drugs. They're turned out often by the next day. You see them a week later, you see them the week after that, and you're tired of arresting the same person for drugs. Here's the backlog in the crime lab. Here's why we can't reach them all. It was marketed that you can help yourself and you can move these cases along much more efficiently. Are you all still using the same technology as you were uh, back when you started the program, or how has the technology evolved? The technology has actually changed almost completely. We started with the colorimetric test kits for all of the drugs, the powders and the marijuana. Um, starting in 2012, we piloted a program with the uh, TrueNARC Raman mm -hmm. uh, device, portable device from Thermo Fisher. About the same time, our customers came back to us and said, you guys are doing great with the three, heroin is on the rise and it's killing us. So we actually piloted that. It worked really well for a distinct set of controlled substances. And so now we are completely using the TrueNARC for any powders and we only use the colorimetric test kits for marijuana. Okay, so you found the TrueNARC to work well with heroin. Does it work well with other opiates as well or are you just really looking at heroin with it? Um, yes, we actually have a list of 23 different drugs that they can test now. Mm -hmm. Fentanyl is not part of our program, although if it's in a high enough concentration, the TrueNARC will detect it, and then those officers know to impound it directly to the lab. Right. right. Um, but yeah, we use it on heroin. It's very effective on a lot of pharmaceuticals. Mm -hmm. So Oxycontin, you know, the opiate tablets. The only ones that it doesn't obviously see are those that have a high acetaminophen or a high um, ibuprofen content. Mm -hmm. But those officers are trained as soon as they see that. You don't give it back to them. You don't say that it's not drugs. Those also have to come to the lab because we have to do an extraction to find the actual controlled substance. Sure. Are the people who are uh, arrested for drug offenses 
sensitive to any of that? Do they have any idea about uh, you know, what's going to be caught by the true narc and what might not be? I don't think so. You know, unless they're reading a lot of the literature that comes out to, like, police departments buy our stuff and then this is how great it is, I don't know that they have any idea that we even use the true narcs. Because of the way that we structure it, only a, you know, a small percentage of the officers are trained on this. Mm-hmm. The true narc actually lives at the precinct. So once they arrest someone and book them, they're sitting in a holding cell while the officers are actually doing the testing. It's astounding to me that you all are using ramen on the street. I did research back in the 1980s using a ramen spectrometer, and it was as big as, we're in a fairly sizable conference room here. It took up about half what this conference room is, but a 10 by 10 optical mm-hmm. table, and a spectrometer that I would move by hand. <laughs> and it's an amazing thing that that kind of technology is now available to police. It is, and even in... Um, The early years that we were looking at this, when I was working with the uh, NFSTC and for the NIJ project, we had someone bring a portable IR because this was going to be the latest, greatest thing. You know, it was two or three feet by two feet. Yeah. And that was the portable version. Even the, just the algorithms have changed so much in the technology that it, it couldn't read street drugs. It did a great job on standards. Mm-hmm. But the street drugs are mixed, and it couldn't differentiate that. And now we have a box that's, you know, six inches by ten inches, and it handles street drugs great. Sure. You, you mentioned validation. How much have you done in terms of validation to make sure that the identifications that are happening are actually accurate over a long period of time? So what we did is the City of Phoenix Police Bomb Squad actually had one of these Roman devices for explosives. They're the ones that approached the controlled substances supervisor and analyst and said, this toy is great, you should really check it out because they have one for drugs. They brought it to me up the chain and I had visions of what happened several years ago and said, oh, okay, great, let me know how that goes. Because I really didn't think that it would do very good. Um, So we brought it into the lab. We did our analysis on our full analysis with the GCMS spec and we tested everything that came through. So there's, you know, hundreds of compounds in the library. We have 23 that we have validated and tested over and over and said it's reliable, it's accurate. One of the other issues is things that are in there that are federally controlled aren't controlled in Arizona. Mm -hmm. So we've had to just pick and match, but we did a full validation of it. We also had a couple that lived with us and we did testing for RTI um, when they were collecting data for the landscape study. Yes. And... Everything that we release and tell the officers that you can actually test this and get it charged has gone through full validation by us side-by-side against the GCMS spec. As a disclaimer for the listeners, this is not an endorsement of TrueNARC by the FTCOE or anybody else. There is a landscape study that the FTCOE has done on field identification devices and encourage folks to uh, continue to look at all the different options that might work in their department. And also, you know, as the technology changes, as you said, you've changed your technology completely since the initiation of the program. And tomorrow's technology might make the TrueNARC obsolete as well, but I'm sure they'll keep trying to be competitive. <laughs> Absolutely, and that's correct. We, we didn't do any sort of study to look at the different types. The city had a contract with Thermo Fisher. We already had the bomb explosive version in. That's the sole purpose why we picked it, and it's worked well for our purposes. Does it work well with mixtures as well? Have you had issues there? Because there's a lot of, my understanding is, at least in certain cases, but a lot of it is is related to fentanyl, of course, a lot of uh, folks doing mixtures of different kinds of drugs together now. 
That's correct. We've actually seen, you know, years and years ago, we used to see meth and heroin sometimes in syringes. We used to see coke and heroin mixed. Of recent in powders that we've found, we've seen meth and heroin, fentanyl and, and meth and those types of things, and even heroin and fentanyl. As part of our program, the officers are not allowed to complete a, an affidavit that's used for charging if there's more than one drug in it. And it will differentiate. I mean, we'll get on the screen, it'll say methamphetamine, and then it'll say heroin down below in smaller print. So we just drew the line in the sand for our program and said no mixtures. Mm -hmm. So if there's an inconclusive, if it's something like I mentioned that was high in acetaminophen or, or other lidocaine that are known cuts or known mixtures, those have to come to the lab. And if it indicates at all that there's more than one drug, it has to come to the lab for a full analysis. Now, how do you maintain a uh, proper chain of custody? How do you maintain the integrity of the unit? When somebody comes into a crime laboratory, there's very, very particular procedures for tracking things and making sure that you know everything's lined up with where it's supposed to be and there's integrity to the process. That's much more difficult on a field instrument. Yes, that's correct. Each device lives at a precinct. So that precinct has device serial number, you know, one, two, four, five, six, seven. Only the controlled substances officers are trained to use it, so a regular officer who's not been trained in this program should not be touching it. When it works, you have to do a self-scan, and so it has a specific scan number that goes to the self-test. Then you would have your sample scan, and that scan number is there. When the officers write their report, it has to include the scan number for the self-check, whether it was positive, and then the scan number for the suspected controlled substance, as well as what it was, if it was positive, if there was any indication of any issues. They will still impound that drug and that item of evidence after they're done through the normal police procedures. The difference is it will go to our property management bureau and it will sit there and let, until we know that it's either been adjudicated or it needs to come to the lab for a full analysis. If a person who's been charged with the crime decides that they are going to proceed to court and not take a plea agreement, all of those cases come back to the controlled substances unit for a full analysis. But if an officer pulls somebody over, they're not a field ID officer, they're not a controlled substances officer, they'll call one. That controlled substances officer takes custody of the drugs, takes them back to the precinct, tests them, impounds them under the normal procedure, and then they, they would go through that we get all of our evidence from police property. Mm -hmm. So that chain starts with the officer. When it leaves his control, it becomes property of the property management bureau. They track it wherever it may move within there. They track it to the lab. The lab tracks it from that point on. Do you keep records with respect to, because I'm sure in, if your experience is the same as, as other folks who do similar kinds of things, that you're well over 90%, I assume over 95% of these end up in plea deals. We have an agreement with our county attorneys that if it goes beyond the initial pretrial hearing and they don't accept the plea at that point, that it comes to us. So we probably test about 15% oh. um, of them. So we're about 85 that just plea out and are done. About 15% of them we test. Then as soon as they get the crime lab report back that says it's the same as the true narc said, then they take the plea. And so we probably only testify 
or go to court on maybe half a percent or less. Sure. But we do test about 15%. So that means that, for the most part at least, and I assume the, the vast majority of the 85 were accurate uh, because of the plea deals that we're doing, and the vast majority even of the other 15 are accurate. So you have pretty good confidence that the, that the uh, detections being made by the TrueNARC instrument are actually accurate. Have you had any specific instances where it, you know, red flag, this, this actually didn't turn out to be the same for whatever reason? In our pilot program that I know of, we had one case that was not accurate. What had happened was there's a small square plastic bag that contained a crystalline substance. It was a very small amount. It tested and said amphetamine. During the pilot, we tested everything that anybody touched. We only did one small precinct, and I want to say we had less than 20 officers. So everything that that officer ran, we brought in and tested. When we looked at it, it was about five milligrams. And when we tested it, it was methamphetamine. Still in the same family, but not the same controlled substance. So as things like this have popped up, we adjust our protocols. So now we show the officers in training, like a five millimeter by five millimeter patch of drugs has to be there in order to give enough information to get a positive test. Within that 15% that we retest, we test at least one case from every officer every year as, mm -hmm. as a quality control to go back and check. Before, when we were just using the test kits, the colorimetric test kits, we would try to do one marijuana and then make sure that we did at least one of the powders to make sure because, again, the powders have the most ambiguity when you're dealing with the colorimetrics. Yeah, very different in some respects than a breathalyzer because most of the... Uh officers will only do, on average, one or two cases a year, although some of them obviously will do many, many more than that, right? So your average controlled substances officer is probably doing hundreds of these a year? or um, Some of them are doing hundreds. The average, now that we've switched to the instrumental, it's probably mm -hmm. hundreds. When we were using the color metric tests, they were doing about 300 a month, and we required that they do a minimum of 10 a year. If they didn't do 10 a year, we felt like they would lose that skill set, and so we would not recertify them. With the Raman device, we have less officers, and they're doing, on average, between 650 and 700 of these tests a mm -hmm. month. That's um, and a so, lot. Yeah, so they're <laughs> doing a lot because it's more efficient. Sure. You know, it's, it's the paperwork's the same, but you're not, you know, handling the drugs, putting them in the kit, watching it, then moving to the next one, it's just boom, 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 right through the packaging. Yeah, it'd be very difficult and quite expensive for you all to try to do that kind of throughput here in the laboratory. Absolutely. And so it's helped a lot in the sense of at least getting these cases processed, stacking up those, those charges when you've got those repeat offenders and things like that. They're not sitting in the backlog for six months, a year, until the case sure. goes stale. So is the, uh, is the self-test a calibration as well, or what is the self-test actually doing? On the device that we use, the self-test is actually a little cap that fits over the nose cone and the polystyrene. It's like a polystyrene standard? Standard, and mm -hmm. so it reads it, and it runs it through and says, yes, it's reading correctly, there's no interference, it's not dirty, things like that. Sure. And then they just move that cap out of the way of the nose cone, and test the drugs. Does it require any other regular calibration as well? No. Okay. Well, that makes it very, very easy to yes. use. And how many precincts do you have it deployed in? We have it in all of the precincts, and then there's a south, 
like a main hub and a north main hub, I want to say that we have 10 in the field. I see. I see. So um, as well as the Drug Enforcement Bureau, they have an off-site location. And then there is a, what we call the annex, but it's an area that's here in the crime lab, although it's separate from the crime lab, that's specifically for impounding evidence. So if an officer, say, is from a far north precinct, brings somebody down, books them, and drops them in the jail, they can come here, because the jail's two blocks away, and impound that drug evidence. We also use it for DUI, bloods, and things like that. So it's kind of a central hub, and we have one downstairs that the officers can use there if they haven't already field tested it. Say they found controlled substances, but they've already arrested the person on warrants or something, they can come here, do the field test, do the paperwork, and impound it. Sure. So at this point, you actually have an enormous experience with these units. Yes, we've been using them in the field since 2012. However, it was very limited at first. They are pricey. They run about $20,000 a piece. Mm -hmm. So this is not something that with this technology and the way it is now, that's going to be in every patrol car and we're going to train every officer. We've, through grants and different funding sources, we've put them all through the city. And like I said, now we're getting roughly 700 of these tests a month. That's amazing. But based on that experience, would you, what would be your top lessons learned for folks who are considering doing a field identification program? There's a few, one of which is it's not infallible, just like anything else, even like a test in the laboratory. There's human error that can happen. We found when we trained the officers and the particular device that we're using, you get you know, a green screen, a blue screen, a bright red screen. Bright red screen means that there's a controlled substances in it. Is it really controlled in Arizona? Is it a mixture? Things like that. So training the officers, they really like the colors, but they have to learn to read them. <laughs> right. They've got to read that. The marketing for the TrueNARC you know, lists that there's hundreds of compounds in the library. Not all of those are controlled. Not all of them are applicable. We've been very restrictive because the integrity of the program relies solely on the integrity of the results that we provided the county attorneys for charging. Mm -hmm. We would much rather be conservative and make sure that the tests they're giving that we're providing them are accurate. Uh, so that's why we do that full validation. We just added tramadol because okay. it just became controlled in Arizona. We repeated a full validation on that particular drug before we added it. Um, sample size, we talked briefly about how that came about. Even down to like wording on the affidavit, you know, if this is what happened, this is how it needs to say. Because we have black tar heroin in Arizona, Yes. there's a process. You have to take a small amount, you put it in a vial of methanol, use a dipstick, you have to dry it, and then you let it read. So each one of those steps when you train 150 officers, they're going to find different ways to do it. So we've learned about that. And it's very concentration sensitive. Right. You don't know the concentration of street drugs. So we actually allow them to do three tests on heroin before they have to just call it inconclusive and send it to the lab. Because there's variation. The quality control part of it. I think a lot of police departments see this device or these types of device and want to just issue them and say, here's how they said it works, you know, go, go for it. Yeah. <laughs> and it's just, you need to have an organized program. You need to have a way to go back and check quality control and just make sure that your results are reliable because you don't want to arrest someone 
for something that that uh, they shouldn't be arrested. Another question, kind of another take on it, and that is, do you go out into the field units and challenge them with samples, whether they're blind or not, challenge them on a regular basis with respect to, is it accurately doing cocaine today or whatever else it might be? We have not. When we do training, we put in there very tricky samples for them Mm -hmm. so that in front of us, the officers see this is a mixture. We know it's a mixture. They see meth really big and they don't want to see heroin um, in the small print. And so they'll put that through and that's a failure for the officer. Sure. As far as the true narcs, we had one go down in the field and so we swapped out one that we had in the lab. When it came back, we used the one in the field before we put it back out. But as far as just you know, randomly showing up at the precincts with some samples, we haven't gone and tested it that way. Do you do any of those kinds of procedures for the controlled substances work within your laboratory? Do you do any validation work that might be like blind verifications of how the analysts work or anything of that nature? Sort of. And the reason I say that is we have, and other law enforcement agencies may have the same thing, but obviously as we test drugs and they build up and sitting in our property waiting for the case to be completely adjudicated so they can be destroyed. Our internal affairs, which we refer to as our Professional Standards Bureau, is responsible for viewing what's going out controlled substance-wise to be destroyed and double-checking stuff. What they actually do is they will pull random samples of the lot that's going to go out. It comes back into the lab. If I did a case, I don't get that one back. Mm -hmm. So somebody else does it. So any case that we do potentially could come back in for a reanalysis. So we do that before drugs are destroyed, and we lock down the results so that the second analyst can't see them. We also do quality assurance samples, and it's the same thing. We never know what's going to get pulled back. We let it go through the adjudication uh, process, and then we just pluck randomly from each analyst. The supervisor or the technical lead redoes all of those, mm-hmm. make sure that the results are still valid. Okay, that's so It's not officially blind. It's sort of a you never know if it's going to come back and get you, and then we do those that way. The issue, of course, is 99.9% of analysts are honest and everything like that. Absolutely. But there, there have been some departments, as you know, that have had some issues. And those are the ones that, you know, the one in the 1,000 analysts or whatever, 10,000 analysts that, that hits the papers. Yes, of course. Well, I hope you all hit the papers, but in a good way, because this sounds like a really yes. great program, very well implemented. sounds like it's having a huge and positive impact in Phoenix. Thank you. Thank you for being with Just Science. Next week on Just Science, we interview Prete Menon, the Senior Associate Director at the Justice Programs Office about the National Drug Court Resource Center. Opinions or points of views expressed in this podcast represent a consensus of the authors and do not necessarily represent the official position or policies of its funding. 